Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome back to the China Geopolitics Podcast and Happy New Year wherever you are. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post, talking to you here in our studios in Causeway Bay, Hong Kong, where people are abuzz about the border with mainland China being opened for the first time in more than three years. And just to continue the optimistic mood that's in the air, let me begin the new year with a quote from China's new Foreign Minister, Qin Gang. You'll remember he served as China's ambassador to the United States since 2021. And before leaving the US to take up his new post, he penned what could be best described as a loving tribute to the US and its relationship with China in the Washington Post, saying, I leave the United States more convinced that the door to China-US relations will remain open and cannot be closed. I am also more convinced that Americans, just like the Chinese people, are broad-minded, friendly, and hardworking. The future of both our peoples, indeed, the future of the entire planet, depends on a healthy and stable China-US relationship. Might this be a turning point after years of aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy? The evidence suggests it's possible. Just after our podcast took an unexpected early break last December, came the news that Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong was visiting Beijing ending three years of frozen, if not outwardly hostile, diplomatic relations between the two countries. And after three years of China's unofficial sanctions targeting Australian coal, lobsters, red wine, barley and beef, trade has essentially been restored. But elsewhere, China has been somewhat more assertive, with PLA troops involved in another physical confrontation with Indian soldiers on the contested Himalayan border just before Christmas. This was the first clash since 2020. The Indian military have since moved some 50,000 troops to the region, and after this latest clash, paraded a nuclear-capable missile the Indian media dubbed the China Killer, just to clarify any doubt about its intended use. Lately, the PLA Navy has just sailed its Liaoning aircraft carrier through the strategically sensitive Miyako Strait near the southern Japanese island and home to 13 US military bases of Okinawa. According to Beijing's propaganda mouthpiece, The Global Times, The water south of Japan and west of Guam, both areas in which the Liaoning has held exercises, are important in cutting off military interference forces from the US and Japan. But in this episode, we're going to take you to Europe, as well as post-European Britain, for a sense of how China's relationships are working out with those nations. I was going to get our North American Bureau Chief Rob Delaney in the line as well, but we thought it might be better to wait until the US Congress figures out who it wants as Speaker of the House. But we're also going to take a deep dive into the complex economics and geopolitics involved in Xi Jinping's first official state visitor for the year 2023. I'm talking about Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. 
He's just returned from Beijing, and you'll hear from Lucio Blanco Pitlobe III on how Marcos needed to navigate the stormy waters of territorial claims in the South China Sea while negotiating a series of deals that are being labelled the dawn of durian diplomacy. And if you haven't already seen the tweets from Finbar Birmingham, we've got a special announcement for all our listeners at the end of this podcast. Let's get amongst it. Finbar Birmingham is our Brussels-based correspondent and, of course, the original host of this podcast. Back when we started out as the US-China trade war podcast a few years ago, Finbar, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Jared. Now, I'm going to say it would take two pints and maybe a whiskey to properly catch up on all that's happened in the four weeks since we last spoke. But can I start with one of your exclusives filed just before Christmas Eve? And that was about China's new ambassador to the European Union and his fairly candid remarks about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what it's done with Beijing's relationship, both with Moscow and Europe. What can you tell us? Yes, Jared. So this was um, a long and expansive interview I had with Fu Tung, who's the new Chinese ambassador to the European Union. He's just arrived in Brussels before Christmas. Interestingly, they didn't have anybody in that position for a full year. So it was it was overdue. He's been doing the rounds. He's been sort of greeting with his counterparts at the the European Union's institutions and so on. But yeah, I mean, it was for me, it was really interesting to be able to ask, you know, a very senior Chinese diplomat about the questions which have been dominating the debate vis-a-vis Europe-China over the past year, really, which is everything in Brussels and everything across Europe these days is seen through this lens of Russian invasion of Ukraine. It, it really overshadows everything. And, you know, Fu, to his credit, didn't dodge any of the questions. He answered them all rather perhaps not as satisfactorily in some instances as people would have liked. You know, he did say that he was frustrated that, you know, nine or 10 months into the invasion, people keep pointing to the no limits partnership signed between Putin and Xi before the Beijing Olympics, even though China has reiterated time and again that it wants a peaceful resolution to this. You know, and that's something that I found interesting. Uh, You know, he, he didn't necessarily expand on what China would do to pursue peace, but said that it was ready to sort of back any peaceful resolution without without going into too much detail. He talked about how this has damaged the relationship between China and the European Union. His feeling was that it really shouldn't because it shouldn't be a problem, much less an issue was his exact quote between the two powers. You know, and he, I guess, was a little bit, yes, frustrated that, uh, you know, 10 months into this, everything seems to be still through this lens. I mean, that's going to be the reality for the foreseeable future. Here we are in 2023. Everything is still very much about Russia, about Ukraine. You know, the European Union is in for a recession, largely because of the the supply chain spillovers, the energy crisis, the, you know, the food security issues that are stemming from the invasion. I don't think it's going to go away. You know, it's going to continue to dominate this and European officials when they have a chance to meet and greet with their Chinese counterparts, which is more frequently these days since China has dropped its zero COVID policy. It's going to be top of their agenda. So, I mean, from that point of view, I don't think that it's going to go away. And Fu, I suppose, will get used to, to discussing it at, at length. Now, Finbar, can I pick up on one of the quotes you got from Ambassador Fu in that interview? And he mentioned specifically, quote, we know who is profiting from the energy crisis the European countries have experienced. Now, looking at the kinds of reporting we've done about the huge oil and gas deals China has signed with Russia in the past few months, It's hard not to see that China has profited in some way from 
Russia's increasing isolation from the rest of Europe because of this invasion and war? Well, first point is that China's a net loser. Collateral damage is how he phrased it, both politically. You know, it's seen real strains placed on its relationship with Europe. Economically, he pointed to the fact that a lot of freight previously was going to Europe via Russia. Can't do that any longer because of sanctions. His accusation was that the United States is supplying weaponry and also energy to Europe and is a profiteer from this, which the US obviously denies. I think throughout the interview, one point that really stood out to me was that Fu sees in every grievance that the European Union and that Europe writ large has with China, Fu and perhaps his Chinese colleagues see the United States. He largely blamed the US for stoking all these tensions between Beijing and Brussels. He doesn't think that there are any major problems in the Europe-China relationship. He thinks there are minor issues that can be ironed out, which is a very different view to many people in Brussels and across the European capitals. It sometimes is a cause of annoyance here in Europe that China sort of reduces Europe's problems that it has with China to, oh, this is just the United States. You're essentially saying Europe is a puppet of the United States, whereas many Europeans have come to these conclusions on their own. They have their own issues about China's economic policies. They have their own issues, of course, about China's human rights records. And I put it to Fu Tsung that by blaming the US for all of this, removing any agency from, from the Europeans who have, as I said, come to their own conclusions about many areas of Chinese policy, would not countenance this. He was very keen to project the relationship in a positive light. We've talked before about how the European Union has a sort of triptych way of designating China. So it's considered a, a partner when it's appropriate, a competitor and a systemic rival. Fu dismissed this idea of that there was any systemic rivalry. He says, yes, of course, competition, fine, but partner, yes, rival, no. So it was interesting for me to understand a little bit more how Beijing sees the relationship, doesn't see Europe as a, as a rival. It sees Europe largely as a partner and yes, a competitor on some fronts, but certainly not a rival. That's different to how things are seen here, of course. You know, and I think what we're going to see this year is and this was borne out to me in this interview, we are going to see a lot more face-to-face -face meetings, summits, so on. Just before Christmas, I was at an event in Brussels. I was moderating a panel discussion about a Chinese-built European-funded bridge in Croatia. There was a Chinese diplomat in the audience, and in 18 months of reporting from Brussels, it was the first time that I had actually met Chinese diplomat at an event, or not just at an event, full stop. It was the first time. And, you know, his message when I spoke to him after was, look, we're back. You know, the zero COVID is over. Uh, we're back to face-to-face -face meetings. We're back to debating. And, you know, that's probably healthy. So we're going to see more engagement. The European Union is very keen to, to re-engage. But the underlying substance of the message from China really doesn't seem to have changed. There's no flexibility on the major issues. As I said, China sort of dismisses whatever Europe's concerns are on human rights, on geopolitics. You know, even as Fu Tsung tells me that China is a net loser from this and is friends with both Russia and Ukraine. We saw from the, the meeting between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping last week, you know, that they're still doubling down on their relationship with Russia, that doesn't go down well in Brussels. We have people in Brussels looking at the Communist Party Congress late last year and, and worrying that China is sort of doubling down on the economic policies that they are worried about. 
you know, so it's interesting to see that the sort of presentation of things and things are looking a bit rosier, but at the heart of it, I don't think anything's really changed. I'm not, not sure China's willing to cede ground on the issues that the European Union really wants it to. It's interesting you talk about the complexity of the relationship in Bar because there was a tweet you sent out overnight showing the political director of the EU's Foreign Service giving a very warm welcome to Ambassador Fu. Am I right in thinking this is not the kind of tweet we'd see from the US Foreign Service? Yeah, I think that would be pretty hard to imagine. Um, just to illustrate, this was Enrique Mora, who is almost like Joseph Borrell's chief of staff, welcoming Fu to Brussels as an quote-unquote old friend. Now, the pair would have worked very closely together. They would have each been the representative of China and the European Union in the Iran nuclear talks in Vienna. Enrique Mora still is in that role. You know, Fu, before he came to Brussels, was the head of the arms control division of the Chinese foreign ministry. You know, so they have worked very closely together, but... I think it would be impossible for a sitting U.S. diplomat or official to, you know, welcome his Chinese counterpart as an old friend. I mean, I just can't imagine that. And that says a lot about the differences between how Europe and how America views China. We talked just now about how China and the EU view the relationship differently, but the EU does still genuinely want to find areas of cooperation with China, even if it believes that these are becoming more few and far between. There's a lot of rhetoric about how we need to engage with China and be less naive. So they do they do want to work with China wherever it can do, but they understand that there's a shrinking space for this. I, I'm not sure it's the same for the US government. I don't report so much on US policy these days, but I just don't see that there's too much of a push to, to have any sort of positive dealings with the Chinese. You know, it reminded me of an interesting op-ed in the Financial Times this week by the foreign affairs columnist Gideon Rachman, who asked the question, do we want China to fail? Or basically, do we want to manage the rise of China within a system? And I think this is almost like, you know, as, as an outsider looking at the US and sort of an insider reporting in Europe, this is some one of the differences where I sort of see sometimes the rhetoric, at least, coming from, you know, the China community in the United States and broadly in, in Europe. Sometimes, you know, this is something I've noticed over the last 18 months since I started this job. In Brussels, they want to find ways to manage the challenges of China that they see within the existing rules-based order. They want to keep the dialogue going. They want to be diplomatic about things. So whereas Beijing does lash out about the EU's trade policy as being protectionist because, you know, there are tools that are designed to sort of counter what they see as China's economic malpractice. These are, you know, you've got the anti-coercion instrument, international procurement instrument, the foreign subsidies law, forced labour ban. These are being done. They're so careful to do these within WTO rules. They're all designed to be commensurate with the supposed offence that China is, is committing, and they're not inherently about hobbling China. I can't, again, speak in detail about US policy. I haven't followed it closely enough recently, but if you look at the sort of sweeping export controls, the Uyghur forced labour ban, etc., they don't seem to be executed with the same precision. They've been sued at the WTO, of course, by China over the export controls over chips and so on, but they're also falling out with some of their allies over this. You know, the European Union was very unhappy with the United States' move to try and force the Dutch company SML to implement the same export controls. You know, so that picture tells a, a broader story, you know, about maybe the Europeans and the Americans have the same shared grievances, but the way that they're going about tackling those is really very different. So Finbar, looking back at the year 2022, a very extensive archive of yours, of course, on scp.com to look through. But I want to ask, what was the biggest surprise or shock in your particular patch, your beat in the year that's been? 
I think there's only really one answer to that, and that has to be the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which changed everything. You know, before that, the biggest story for me was Lithuania and Taiwan. You know, we we talked about that at length. It was a great news story. It was really interesting to cover, but all of that sort of paled in comparison to what happened after February 24th. Um, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine really changed a lot in Europe you know, gave birth to what they call this new geopolitical Europe, which is kind of fracturing, you know, it's a little bit flimsier and, you know, and it's maybe not as geopolitical as they like to believe it was at the time, but it's really damaged the Europe-China relationship also. I think China's proximity to Russia is as toxic as it was in, in March now. And I think that will, as I said earlier, it'll continue to overshadow everything. I don't think I wrote a story after the invasion that didn't in some way nod to it, you know, the result, because it's, it just percolates everything here in, in Brussels and across the European capitals. If you go to a press conference in some way, regardless of what the press conference is about, in some way, there's always some sort of reference back to the war, you know, which doesn't show any sign of abating. And as Fu said, when I interviewed him for Christmas, there's some frustration that Chinese relationship is being viewed through this lens, but I don't think that's going to go away. So that was certainly the biggest surprise. Nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody saw that coming. Obviously, some people did, but we were sort of, you know, scrambling to cover it when it did happen. Well, here we are in the year 2023, coming up on the year of the rabbit, no less. What do you see in the year ahead for Euro-Sino relations? We've seen increasingly tougher rhetoric from Ursula von der Leyen. We've seen, as you say, differing approaches to diplomacy with China, with Macron uh, visiting uh, Beijing, uh, Scholz visiting Beijing as well. What do you see in the year ahead? Yeah, I think you're going to see a lot more of that engagement sort of face-to-face. It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. You know, thus far, it's been engagement really to sort of reconnect. Some people call it engagement for engagement's sake. Certainly that's how the United States views it. But, you know, the Europeans have used those meetings as a way to really convey in strong terms their concerns about Russia and their concerns about Taiwan and issues like that, that they didn't get to discuss, obviously, through the pandemic face to face. It's always when they're dealing with Xi Jinping, I guess, this is not a person who surrounds himself by people who feed back the negative news. At least that's the sense I get from what European officials and and leaders are trying to do. You know, the more that they can say these things in person to him, the better. I think that's going to really be interesting. What would be also fascinating to see is whether that will actually yield anything. You know, will we just see continually China sticking to its red lines or will there be some concessions? We're going to see a new German-China strategy that, you know, was supposed to be, there was supposed to be government-to-government consultations between Germany and China this month, I understand, based on some other reporting that it's been moved to the spring until after this China strategy is unveiled. Will that present a path for the rest of the EU to follow where Germany goes often Europe follows. That would be really fascinating to see. Taiwan will continue to be a huge topic that has raced up the sort of ladder of China-related issues over the last year. We're going to get the first German minister in 25 years to visit there, I think. Certainly this education minister is planning to go there, which is big. Chips, of course, is huge. Can the European Union build its own ecosystem? Obviously not this year, it won't, but you know, can it make progress towards doing that? Will it follow the US export controls? You know, there's plenty of these issues which have been long in the making that are that are going to continue to unravel as the year goes on. You mentioned chips there, and from what we've seen, the race to, let's say, encourage TSMC to move some of its operations out of Taiwan, 
either to Europe or Arizona, as the case may be. I guess there's also the race for minerals and the new green revolution in electric vehicles. Yeah, I think those are all going to be really important in this relationship. And in my reporting, we're also seeing some contention between the European Union and the US over this. The unfortunately named Inflation Reduction Act. I won't say the acronym as an Irishman. I don't agree with it. But this is another area in which they they don't see eye to eye. On another note, the European Union is trying to massively expand the use of solar power and renewable energy at the same time as trying to ban goods made using forced labour. We've all read about the allegations of forced labour being used in the massive solar panel industry in Xinjiang, which China, of course, denies. But I mean, those are all little dichotomous issues that will be make for great reporting, I hope for me, over over the next year. But no shortage of, of stories, that's for sure. Well, Fibar Birmingham, no doubt, will be reading your stories and analysis coming up on scmp.com. And as I started our interview, thank you once again for kicking off some years ago a podcast series about the tariffs that had been introduced by Donald Trump on a whole litany of Chinese products. And then we developed that into the US-China trade war podcast. And here we are some years later, other sides of the world talking here about China geopolitics. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, Jared. And can I just say, this has been your baby since since day one. We worked together to get it launched, but you were, of course, you know, the master behind the wizard's curtain on the wheels of steel, twiddling knobs and pushing buttons and making us all sound understandable, just about, I hope. And then you've, you've now become the voice of the podcast over the past year. So thanks a million to you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Finbar. Speak to you soon. It really doesn't feel that long ago that I was sitting in a studio in Causeway Bay watching Chad Bray host this very podcast. Now he joins me on a breezy morning from London. Hello, Chad, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's good to be back. Chad, the still yet to be elected billionaire Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has come out and made a major economic statement where he's going to halve inflation and grow the economy. But am I right in thinking his tough talk about China being a threat has been somewhat overshadowed by more domestic issues. Yeah, it's a really interesting situation here because you have a cost of living crisis, you have rail strikes, you have public sector workers going on strike, you have a crisis in the NHS, and it's all sort of billowing down. And so domestic issues are really distracting almost from any kind of foreign policy efforts. At the same time, you have the foreign secretary, James Cleverly, who's who's out there really trying to increase the connections between Britain and the Indo-Pacific. So he's talking to people in Southeast Asia. They're expanding their agreements with Japan. They're going to build an advanced fighter with Japan and Italy. There's a number of things that Britain's sort of doing behind the scenes to try to strengthen their uh, role in the region and act as a hedge against China. At the same time, for Sunak, He's someone that has talked about using a robust pragmatism when it comes to China. So being tough in negotiations, being tough when it comes to certain issues such as human rights. But then at the same time, he really wants to continue that economic connection between the countries. One that goes back certainly to when uh, David Cameron was prime minister and was, you know, hosting Xi Jinping for a beer in a pub here in the UK as he was trying to build better relations with the country. 
And that really seems like the benchmark of the contemporary diplomatic history between the UK and China. That is David Cameron having a pint with Xi Jinping. And then we had Rishi Sunak come out and declare the end of the golden era of relations with China. Did I miss something, Chad? Was there actually a golden era in the last five to 10 years? Well, there was a period where they were really actively encouraging China to invest in the UK. And so we have the nuclear plant that's going to be built in the UK is based upon Chinese designs. And for a period there, there was a Chinese company that was going to own a third of that plant. But now we've seen in the last year the passage of the National Security Investment Act, which is very similar to CFIUS in the United States. It's been used to block a number of foreign companies investing in the UK, many of them Chinese. At the same time, the UK government has made a move to basically buy out the investment of the Chinese company in the nuclear plant. And so there's a number of things where it's becoming a lot more tense than it was when George Osborne as chancellor went to Beijing and went to Shanghai and was essentially declaring the golden era started in about 2015. Well, can I ask you for a forecast for what lays ahead in this year, 2023, the year of the rabbit soon to be? What lays ahead for the Sino-UK relationship? Well, I, you know, I think it's going to be a challenging one. In Rishi Sunak's conservative party, you have a number of China skeptics who have, you know, risen into power and are really pushing for the government to do more on China, whether it be around Hong Kong, whether it be around human rights issues, that they want the government to be more active. At the same time, I think Sunak is in a situation with the economy here, we're still facing hyperinflation, double-digit inflation, which, as you said, he wants to have this year, and we're not sure how he's going to do that. And so there is a need for economic development in this country. There is a need for jobs. There is a need to sort of try to figure out how to make this economy churn outside of the European Union. And so I think relationships, whether it is with other parts of Asia, or with China are going to be important. And so I think that economic tie is still going to be there. It's just going to be a bit more difficult than it it had been in the last few years. I, I think there's going to be deals that are going to be able to be done. Then there's going to be deals where people are going to say, no, you can't do this. Semiconductors, you know, drone technology, any kind of dual use technology, that's going to be a problem. And I guess the most topical thing happening in the last 24 to 48 hours has been this issue of different nations requiring PCR tests before flying out of mainland China and Hong Kong. What kind of political theatre has been going on this week in the UK concerning that? Well, it's been interesting because, you know, you had a top health official when the U.S. said that they were going to require testing of all travellers from China and Hong Kong to say... Testing isn't worthwhile at this point. You know, we've got so many cases of COVID in the UK already and sort of singling out China and testing those travelers isn't really going to change anything. But then the next day, the UK said we're going to have testing of all travelers coming from China. And now it's emerged that that testing regime is not actually going to lead to people being forced to self-isolate if they have COVID they're going to be able to travel in the country and move around just like anyone else in the UK. Basically, it's because the amount of cases that already exist in the UK. 
which Adam's speaking to you about, you know, macro policy, foreign policy with the UK. But people who read the SCMP.com would know you also as our specialist correspondent concerning banking. And by that, I mean HSBC and the ongoing focus of it walking this fine line between East and West, particularly in the UK. Can you give us a forecast of what lays ahead for the year and HSBC? For HSBC, it's interesting because they're in a situation where the changing economic environment actually may be to their benefit because they're going to benefit from an increase in interest rates, which particularly in the UK don't seem to be stopping anytime soon because of how high inflation is here. At the same time, you have a business that is really trying to connect East and West when East and West seem to be decoupling or at least looking for secondary ways to try to produce goods and move goods as opposed to everything coming out of China as so much has had done in the last 20 years. And so for HSBC, that has led to various political firestorms they've been in. At the moment, they seem to be less challenged than they have been in terms of some issues over the years. At the same time, this is always something that's going to come up. You have uh, British politicians who really don't like the relationship between HSBC and the Chinese government. They think the Chinese government you know, may have too much influence. At the same time, you have HSBC's largest shareholder, Ping'an, the Chinese insurer, saying, you need to spin off the Asian business. You need to, to break it up because we don't need to be in the middle of this sort of uh, silliness where tit for tat on tariffs or tit for tat on sanctions. And so it's a challenge. They see self as, you know, one of the few banks that's really doing this and doing it well. And they think that they have a role to serve. And ultimately, governments will need that connection. They will need that economic tie and they will be there to provide it no matter the firestorm. Sounds like a lot of domestic issues on the plate for Rishi Sunak to deal with, notwithstanding the coronation of a new king notwithstanding he's yet to take his government to face the electorate in a general election. Then, of course, there's the whole issue of his nation's economy in some serious trouble. But, of course, Chad Bray, we will look forward to your analysis and reporting on SEP.com. And can I thank you also for all the work you've done for this podcast over the years? Well, thank you, Jared. I've enjoyed being here. I look forward to speaking with you in the future. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Lucio Blanco Pitlow III is a research fellow at the Asia-Pacific Pathways to Progress Foundation. He's a fellow at the University of the Philippines Career Research Center, lecturer at the Chinese Studies Program at Ateneo de Manila University, and also a contributing editor for the Asia Politics and Policy Journal. But he's also a regular contributor of analysis and opinion pieces to the South China Morning Post and a perennial guest here on this podcast. Lucio, welcome back and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Jared. Always good to be here. Now, Lucia, we often scrutinize the symbolism of the type of high-profile visits between leaders going to Beijing as much as we do the results. This was President Marcos's first state visit, and it was the first visit of a leader to Beijing in 2023. What does this Marcos-Xi Jinping meeting symbolize to you? 
I think, as you said, no, this is uh, many firsts. No? The first the visit by President Marcos to China. Uh, it's also the first state visit uh, to a major uh, global power. And uh, also for China, the first to host foreign leader early uh, in the year. I think for the Philippines, this shows the importance that it attaches to relations with China. For China, of course, neighborhood diplomacy, very important. And we have seen this that uh, in the last two years, ASEAN has been China's largest trade partner. And so we would see that there would be more engagement, trade, economy between the two sides. And the Philippines is actually right on it. So for Marcos to be the first this year, of course, this is a strong regional resonance. Because if we can recall last July, Indonesian President Joko Widodo was the first to visit Beijing after the Beijing uh, Winter Olympics. And last late October to early November, it was the turn of Communist Party of Vietnam Party Secretary General Nguyen Phu Trong to be the first foreign leader to visit China after the 20th Party Congress. And he was the first to shake hands with President Xi Jinping after President Xi received the unprecedented five-year extension. And so for the Philippines, this is its turn. And so this visit has a lot of symbolism. It's fascinating you give that kind of context, Lucio, because we often hear about Joe Biden's efforts to create alliances in his strategic competition with China. It really looks like Xi Jinping is doing quite the same to great success in this part of the world across Southeast Asia. But let me talk about the flashpoints of conflict between the Philippines and and China. You know, this visit came four weeks after Reuters reported the Philippines' military concerns over Chinese vessels, quote, swarming in the West Philippine Sea. And a week after Bloomberg reported that Chinese fishing boats were carrying out landfill work at four sites around the Spratly Islands, just west of the Philippine island of Palawan, How much of a domestic issue is that for President Marcos, this development of, you know, military bases or infrastructure uh, through the Spratleys? And what did you think of the outcome of discussions on this between the presidents Marcos and Xi Jinping? Well, of course, there is a lot of concern about recent Chinese activities in the West Philippine Sea or in the Philippine Exclusive Economic Zone in the South China Sea. So this is one of the items that were picked up in the visit. As we all know, there was uh, an agreement for both sides to set up a communication mechanism between the foreign ministries of both sides. Uh, this would help ensure that incidents in the South China Sea will be handled deftly. It remains to be seen how this will be implemented on the ground. But establishment of such a mechanism goes to show that both sides you know, attach great importance to maintaining a modicum of arrangement to avoid maritime incidents from affecting overall relations. And we would also see that this was in some way a continuity from the previous uh, arrangement. Under the past uh, Duterte administration, there was a bilateral consultative mechanism at a vice ministerial level arrangement where Under Secretary of the Philippine Foreign Affairs and his counterpart in China meets at least once a year to address issues uh, on the South China Sea. In the last six years, they have convened six times Although they have not resolved the issue, they have prevented the crisis. So while there were sea incidents, they did not affect overall relations. And I think President Marcos wanted to have the same kind of landscape under his watch. I can't think of any other country in Southeast Asia or or indeed any other country that has this level of complexity of relationship with mainland China, given that we saw 
14 deals signed within three days uh, between President Marcos and President Xi Jinping at the same time as these, these very intensive rivalry, uh, territorial disputes going on in Philippines' exclusive economic zone. In terms of the deals, Lucio, what stood out for you? Was it the infrastructure deals or was it the agriculture deals that really you know, rang some bells in terms of a, a new era of, of relationship between the Philippines and China? Marcos early on said that he wanted these bilateral relations to be taken to a higher gear. And so this visit, I think, is an indication of that desire. And compared to the previous Duterte administration, the deals were more modest. I think back in 2016, there were, what, 29 deals that were signed by both sides. And of course, there were some bottlenecks and delays in the implementation of those agreements. The pandemic also affected the timelines of uh, many of those deals and projects. And so I think President Marcos's visit and the deals that were signed, they were, I would say, more subdued, more tempered. And some of those deals were actually continuation of previous projects, like uh, three priority bridges in Metro Manila. And of course, the renewal of commitment of both sides to the Belt and Road Initiative. And so we see that the previous to 30 administrations build, 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 synergy or convergence with the Belt and Road Initiative. And it seems President Marcos is taking a page from that. So his own Build Better More Infrastructure flagship program also wanted to connect with the BRI. And so we, we have seen that reflected in one of those 14 agreements. And there's also a deal on digital cooperation and emerging technologies. I think this is big. We know that private Philippine telco companies continue to procure Huawei gear in spite of the U.S. actions and, of course, the encouragement of allies and partners to stay out or try to diversify to, with, with other suppliers. And so uh, for China to play a role in building Philippine telco infrastructure, they have already invested in a new player in the Philippine telco market. And, of course, in fintech, the Philippines, its e-commerce market over the past few years has improved a lot. And the pandemic created an environment for e-commerce transactions to really balloon. And so for China to play a, a much bigger role in the coming years on that will be big for the country and for both sides. Lucio, we discussed what was talked about at this meeting. I want to find out what wasn't mentioned. I mean that in that there was an official statement from Xi Jinping that China is ready to continue to work with the Philippines to resume negotiations on oil and gas development in non-disputed areas. I'm going to guess that they didn't discuss that 2016 court case which the Philippines won against China granting its sovereign right to exploit energy reserves in its economic zone. How has this been navigated, this, this tricky issue of a, this 2016 court case, which China refuses to accept, and the Philippines need to develop resources in its economic zone. I would like to think that the 2016 arbitration award was factored or was raised, was mentioned somehow, probably uh, privately, you know, between the two leaders. But uh, I think there's no way for the Philippines to skirt around it. I, I think they would have to raise it. And for the joint energy cooperation on the West Philippine Sea, uh, which most likely would be on the Philippine Exclusive Economic Zone. Of course, there's greater urgency for the Philippines for that because our largest natural gas field may run out in a few years' time, and this will take place under the watch of President Marcos. And so there's a sense uh, uh, for him to really find a deal, you know, to 
be able to harness oil and gas uh, in that area. Unfortunately, of course, China's concerns about the Philippines' attempt to unilaterally extract oil and gas in that area. So I think there would be some, some kind of agreement probably taking off from previous negotiations that took place under the watch of former President Duterte and uh, President Xi. They already discussed, uh, I think, it already reached the, the level of the technical working group to make sure that the, the policy and the business side for the joint oil and gas project are, are on the same page. But I think they did not have enough time to, to push through with the talks. So I think China, as President Xi mentioned, wanted to convey to the Philippines that it is ready to resume where the, both sides have stopped. And so I think President Marcos, in a way, is also trying to convey to President Xi that it wanted China to sweeten the deal. You may have to find some terms or provisions that will be seen more favorably in the eyes of the domestic public. So again, this would be some difficult conversations between both sides. You know, Lucia, that does make me wonder whether this this term we heard bandied about after this meeting, durian diplomacy, uh, with mainland China agreeing to buy durian fruit from the Philippines, essentially trying to sweeten that deal can I ask you something else as well? And that's you know, part of this fascinating stuff you find out at the intersection of you know, resources and geopolitics. And that's that the Philippines is the world's largest nickel producer and China gets 70% of its nickel from the Philippines to use in stainless steel, mobile phone batteries, rocket engines, armor plating, all sorts of uses. Your piece published on SEMP.com previewing this meeting wondered about a possible deal for a nickel processing facility. What movement is there on that front? The Philippines, as you said, you know, correctly, you know, that we are one of the largest producers and exporters of nickel. And when Indonesia stopped exporting raw ores, we, we actually became among the largest exporters of this very important critical mineral. Incidentally, during the visit of Vice President Kamala Harris uh, just uh, a few weeks ago, she also pledged that the U.S. will invest in uh, developing a nickel processing facility uh, in the country. So it seems that both sides, China and the U.S., are courting the Philippines to invest in smelting facility, you know, processing facility in the Philippines, which, of course, the Philippines would welcome because this would create more revenue. This is more added value for the Philippines, meaning more jobs would be created, more technology transfer, and we may probably be able to invite more companies uh, that are using nickel as a primary ingredient for their manufacturing to come in here. So that would be, you know, electric vehicle manufacturers. It's a whole range of industries because nickel has uh, both civilian and military applications. And so this is a very critical mineral, which the Philippines possess a lot. And as a developing country, we would need uh, as much, you know, investments in order for us to make the most out of the minerals that we have. So instead of simply exporting the raw ore with less value, investors can come in here and process the ore here and then produce the byproducts. You know, there could be a downstream sector that may rise up from this deal. I'm fascinated that you mentioned uh, U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris there and her announcement of intention to develop a nickel processing facility in the Philippines. It's just over a month and a half since her visit to the Philippines, but the reporting of her visit was just dominated by a narrative of defense, of bringing U.S. naval assets, basing them at Subic Bay, about her very symbolic 
standing in Palawan and looking west towards the Spratleys. There was not much discussion from her about construction or investment, and I'm just wanting you to contrast her visit with President Marcos's visit to Beijing. Now, it looks like China's outplaying the U.S. in terms of economic diplomacy. Well, yes, uh, certainly uh, on the economic front, the uh, profile of China uh, in relation to the Philippines has uh, increased, you know, by by several fold. And uh, China is the country's largest trade partner since 2016, and uh, second largest investor, increasingly important player in Philippine infrastructure. And of course, with the uh, reopening of the China tourist market, we are raring to get more of the pie, so to speak. Before the pandemic, we have over a million uh, Chinese tourists, and that increased threefold in just uh, three or four years. But going to the U.S. overtures uh, on the economic front, I think it was relatively underwhelming and did not catch much of media attention. Fortunately, you know, the, the security, especially the greater military access for U.S., that has dominated the visit. But there were attempts, you know, there were economic deals that were also pledged by Vice President Harris. This includes investments in organic agriculture, civilian nuclear energy cooperation, a proposal to build a geothermal plant in Mindanao, and of course, this nickel processing facility. But of course, most uh, media tended to focus on the uh, security side of it. But there were, of course, some uh, economic uh, incentives from that visit. But of course, China, with this 14 agreements, you know, many of it in infrastructure, digital uh, connectivity, agriculture, of course, renewables. China is projecting that in terms of economic goods, you can get more from China. So I think that picture, China was able to convey clearly in this visit. As you rightly point out, the the role of Chinese tourism and Chinese students is huge uh, in the Filipino economy, in the Australian economy, the global economy, and of course, the borders open this weekend. We'll see what comes of that. And as always, look to SCP.com for your latest analysis and opinion pieces. Lucio Blanco Pitlow III, thank you very much. And thank you for all your contributions to this podcast. Thank you so much, Jared, and I look forward to to having more conversation to you. Thanks once again for listening. If you haven't already figured it out, this will be one of our last episodes of the China Geopolitics Podcast. We started off three years ago as the US-China Trade War Podcast, after Finbar Birmingham and I had finished a short series on the human stories behind Trump's trade war on China. What a journey it's been since. We changed the name of this podcast with the election of Joe Biden and the increasing role of SEMP's reporters in Europe, Africa, the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, telling the story of China's changing geopolitical relationships. Along the way, we've had the great pleasure of speaking with experts and commentators from across the world and expert journalists and editors from across our newsroom and bureaus around the world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, may I suggest you raise a glass to all those people who made themselves available. And as always, may I point you to SEMP.com to continue reading the latest news and expert analysis. And until the world can figure out a better alternative, you can still follow us on Twitter at SEMP News, and I'm easily found as well at J underscore what. As ever, there's so much to talk about. Expect next week to be a bumper episode. Bye for now. <laughs>